Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled An Update on Biomarkers in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Clinical Management, is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by an educational grant from CGEN. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Well, welcome again to our afternoon sessions, and this is a great presentation I'm looking forward to. It's an update on biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer clinical management, and a great speaker, Rashida Persinger, who is the lead nurse practitioner in the Division of Medical Oncology at Johns Hopkins in Washington, D.C., and I know she will bring a lot to this presentation for us today. These are her disclosures. And I'll remind you of our learning objectives, which are to identify actionable biomarkers and their impact on non-small cell lung cancer, and to integrate recommended approaches to biomarker testing into the management of these patients, and to utilize the results of biomarker testing to identify optimal treatment strategies for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Thank you so much, Taryn. Thank you for everyone that has logged in. Let's get right into it because we have a lot of information to cover in a short amount of time. So lung cancer remains a major global health burden. What we do know is lung cancer is one of the most common cancer and is the leading cause of cancer deaths in the U.S. and worldwide. As you can see, the new cases are in the U.S. is over 200,000. Globally, over 2 million in 2020. The deaths in U.S. was greater than 127,000 in 2023 and globally 1.8 million. So this is really something that needs to be you know, talked about and discussed. So the five-year survival rates is overall 22.9%. Metastatic, when there's a metastatic diagnosis, that's even lower. The non-small cell lung cancer accounts for between 80% and 85% of lung cancer. So this is a great chart. It's approximately 50% of patients with advanced non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer have a driver mutation targetable by FDA-approved agents. And so this is a wonderful pie chart that kind of breaks down each of those mutations along with its respective FDA-approved drugs. So why do we perform biomarker testing in non-small cell lung cancer? We know from many studies that patients who get chemotherapy as opposed to targeted therapy specific to their driver mutations do much worse. And that's what this graph kind of shows us over here. It shows us the overall survival by receipt of guideline-recommended therapy. When patients were placed on their targeted therapy, they had an overall survival of 18.6 months versus if they were did not receive that therapy and just had a broad-based chemotherapy despite having a driver mutation, that number was lower. 11.4 months was their overall survival. All right, here's our case study. John, a 65-year-old gentleman, presented to primary care complaining of dyspnea, persistent cough, and intermittent pain in the left side of his chest. After a chest x-ray revealed a lung mass and a biopsy confirmed adenocarcinoma, he was referred to an oncologist. He's a never smoker. However, he had childhood exposure to secondhand smoke. No palpable masses or visible lesions on physical exam, and his ECOG performance status is 1. The diagnostic workup included a PET imaging, which revealed extensive tissue involvement greater than three centimeters, and a brain MRI showed one brain metastasis at a half a centimeter. The diagnosis of stage four adenocarcinoma was arrived at. 
So let's just remember, remember that first slide I showed you had all those different mutations, right? And in this patient study, we're looking at a metastatic stage four patient. But are we testing? I think that polling kind of gives us some inkling. Are we really testing like we should be? This was a study, it's called the MyLung Consortium Data, which pulled out 3,474 3, patients in the U.S. Oncology Network through the years of 2018 and 2020. 74% of those patients were adenocarcinoma. So when we looked at this and looked at the overall testing of next-generation sequencing, what we saw is that when patients were in non-squamous, so non-squamous is that adenocarcinoma, there were only 39% of patients that had next-generation sequencing. That means testing all of those biomarkers that have an FDA drug therapy for. And that's what this slide shows us, that the next-generation testing rates over the time and overall population, though it is improving, is still not where we are. Yes, we have that single essay of people doing an EGFR or maybe alpha ROS1. But again, remember that first slide with all of those mutations. We cannot, you know, risk missing a mutation because we just did single essay. So biomarker testing in advanced non-small cell lung cancer, and this comes out of the NCCN guidelines. As you can see, when we look at non-squamous, remember non-squamous are those adenocarcinoma. And it's listed there of all of those mutations that have a drive. FDA-approved drugs. So the importance of getting that next generation, that what the NCCN guidelines states is that broad molecular testing, preferably with NGS recommended to use least amount of tissue. And then obviously PDL one by IHC. And then squamous, even in squamous, because you have some of those patients that fit those characteristics that consider molecular, molecular testing, broad molecular testing is preferably with NGS recommended to use, again, least amount of tissue. And again, PDL1 by IHC. So what is just, I want just to really drive home is that order biomarker testing, preferably NGS, to make sure that we identify any actionable mutation in all patients with advanced non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, consider it in non-small and squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Thank you. So now we're going to talk about biopsy for biomarker testing a little bit more. So tissue from the primary tumor or the metastatic site equally suitable is considered the gold standard for biomarker testing. Lung cancer biopsies are less cellular than other solid tumors, need about 10 to 20 percent of viable cancer cells in sample for reliable results. Lung tumors can be heterogeneous in, in origin. So remember that. Bone biopsy potentially is suboptimal due to the decalcification and degradation of DNA, but new methodologies are evolving. You also have liquid biopsies, which is just cell-free DNA and plasma are another option. So let's look at this liquid plasma. I know everyone has probably heard of it. It's the blood sample that's containing cell-free DNA from multiple sources, including DNA shed from, from tumor. So in, in simplistic terms, you have this abundance of cancer cells that's being pushed into the bloodstream and you get this blood sample. And when do we use blood liquid biopsy? Plasma first approach is for inadequate or no tissue biopsy, if negative rebiopsy for tumor tissue. And a sequential approach is where you get the tumor tissue is adequate for genotyping, but then you follow it with ctDNA testing only when results from tissue are incomplete. Then there's the complementary approach, increases the rate of biomarker detection. 
And then definitely if there's a resistance to TKI. There's advantage, right? Advantages that is minimally invasive, may overcome tumor heterogeneity. But there are some limitations, which include the sensitivity is only 70 to 80%. Specificity is near 100%. Negative result is, is non-informative cannot, and it cannot assess histology or pdl one status. So here's our case again. John's molecular testing by NGS indicates that his tumor is driven by an EGFR X, EX19 deletion mutation. I wonder if, Rashida, you'd like to comment on this slide. So this is just, it's, it's a printout that we typically could get depending on your institution, depending on what source you use for getting this interrogation of the tissue. But this is just showing you in the alteration what alteration is identified. It always usually tells you the cell-free and DNA percentage of where it was it, it is it was noted. And then it gives you that associated FDA approval therapies. And then along with the clinical trial. So this is this is basic and all at the bottom will give you different variants and so forth that may or may not be utilized at that time, but maybe in the future. I'll turn it back to you, Rashida. So EGFR mutations, I, I think that anybody that knows lung cancer is probably very familiar with EGFR mutations. It is more common, but not exclusively, to never and minimal smokers, East Asian and women. It's classical mutations make up the majority, and that's that exon 19 deletion and that exon 21, or you may have heard of it as LA58R. There are some atypical and uncommon EGFR mutations including the G719X, the LA161Q, and the S768I. Some are sensitive to traditional EGF inhibitors, some are not. And of course, there's more study needed. The uncommon EGFR mutations is in the pie graph that is shown there. I'm not going to go over the exon 20 insertion because we'll talk about that a little bit later. So when we look at bio, biomarker-directed therapy in advanced non-small cell lung cancer, the classical mutations these are the different generations, right? That first, that second, that third generation. And as we came down to this, this fourth generation, the thought is that there are less, or not the thought, the, the, the literature and the study shows that there are less side effects that we can see in terms of grading when we got to that fourth generation of drug. And so it is FDA indicated in first-line metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with LA58R or exon 19 deletion. Subsequent lines of metastatic, if you harbor that resistant strain of T790M after progression of maybe you would, they were initiated on that first or second generation of drug. So the FLORA trial was, was, was very monumental. This trial looked at osimertinib versus first generation TKIs that showed that it was an improvement in the PFS for patients with advanced EGFR positive non-small cell lung cancer. And with CNS meds, which is important, right? Because we all know that patients more than often in that stage four, there is this presentation of brain meds, or at some point they will get brain meds. So they included patients that had CNS meds. And what it showed is that osimertinib improved overall survival and PFS in overall patient cohort versus jafatinib or erlatinib. The overall survival, as you see there, is noted in terms of the hazardous ratio. And when we looked at this, this graph, they showed us the PFS in patients with CNS mets, because that's important, right? That's one of the things that we really want to look at. When we looked at that, the medium PFS was 15.2 in the osimertinib lab arm and 9.6 months in 
the standard of care that those first generation PCARs. So this was huge. It showed that there was really good CNS penetration there. So when we look at phase three, which was the ADORA trial update. So this is using osimertinib in those patients with early stage disease. So these are patients that are post-surgical resection. They were known to harbor that EGFR mutation, exon, exon 19 or exon 21. And so what this was is an international randomized double-blinded phase three trial that showed that there was a DFS in overall population, regardless of the stage when we look at early stage, stage 1B, stage 2, and stage 3A. And what we see is a breakdown of, of it over, even when you did a two-year analysis, a three years, and a four years, still showed a good DFS in approval. And so when we looked at the medium DFS in months, the osimertinib arm was 65.8 months versus placebo, meaning that they did not get the Target therapy, they may or may not got adjuvant chemotherapy. That arm was 28.1. So FDA approved in December, December of 2020 for adjuvant treatment of adults with stage 1B, 3A, and stage 1B to 3A, EGFR positive non-small cell lung cancer, post-tumor resection, plus or minus adjuvant chemotherapy. So when we, again, when we're looking at the dosing and the side effects, same thing in the adjuvant setting as well. It's 80 milligrams in the adjuvant setting. You're doing it for three years versus in the metastatic where it's until disease progression of poor tolerability. The frequent side effects that we see is diarrhea, rash, dry, dry skin, nail toxicity, stomatitis, fatigue, decreased appetite. Some of those grade three or greater side effects we just need to keep an eye on is that decreased appetite diarrhea, and the QT prolongation. And I highlight that because we know in our oncology patients, they tend to be on other drugs that can cause QT prolongation. One that comes to mind is Odansetron. So I said we're going to go back in terms of exon 20 mutate insertions, which is an EGFR mutation. So this is the Thales study, Imavatinib. And EGFR exon 20 insertion positive advanced non small cell lung cancer post platinum. So remember, I said in that second line. So this is best overall response by exon 20 insertion regions. And they kind of just broke it up in, in uh, depending on the helicate region near their loop, the far loop, and non detected by CT DNA, but they still derived a, a response. And so this shows you to break down their overall response rate as, as it related to the different region that they were in. So when we look at the Prisala study even further, in EGFR exon 20 is the 20 insertion positive advanced non-small cell lung cancer, post-platinum, again, second line therapy. When we look at the PFS and the medium PFS overall was 6.9 months, and then the overall survival was 23 months. And you can see there is the breakdown as it relates that the overall response rate was 37%. Efficacy consistent regardless of prior therapies or response to, to prior platinum-based chemotherapy. 13% of patients remains on therapy with good PS and a medium treatment duration of 2.6 years. So well, let, let's look at the side effects, right? What is that AE when we talk about this imatinib? One of the things that is the is a 90% um, chance of happening is these infusion-related reactions. Primary occurs during the first infusion. As you can see there, 93% of cases 
did not affect the ability to receive subsequent treatments. And we're just managing as we normally would manage it. One of the things in this is that you do pre-medicate with glucocorticoid on week one, day one, and day two. We pre-medicate with acetaminophen and diphenhydramine with all doses. Split the doses of the first infusion in over two days. And if IR is suspected, interrupt the drug and give supportive medication as needed. Some of the other side effects that we see, the all grays, we see that rash, we see that paronychia, we see that stomatitis and paritis. If there was a MET-related mutation or MET-related side effect that we saw was lowering the albuminum and that peripheral edema, and then that gray two or more that didn't happen as much, but it's worth mentioning, um, is that there's the rash and the paronychia there. So anti-tumor activity of mobristertinib and previously treated EGFR exon 20 insertion positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. So just to note the imbatinib is intravenous, right? Mobristertinib is oral. And so when we looked at this and we look at the data that supports this, the confirmed overall response that there was 28 in the cohort arm and explained cohort was 25. When we looked at the medium DOR, it was 15.8 in the PP, PPP cohort and not reached in the exclaim. When we looked at the confirmed overall response percentage, when we looked at the PPP cohort, it was the, the CR was less than one, the PR was 34, and the medium DOR in months was 13.9. The confirmed DCR was 78. When we looked at the exclaim arm, the medium DOR was 11.2, and the confirmed DCR was 75. So the TREs, as we as it relates to mobristertinib in greater than 20% of patients, as you can see with this, this graph here, shows that the biggest one is the rash. You see the paronychia, that decreased appetite. There is some of that diarrhea. And then the dry skin, the vomiting, the increased creatinine. When we looked at the exclaim arm, the rash was, again, up there at the top, paronychia, decreased appetite and dry skin. Diarrhea management, begin anti-diarrhea at the first occurrence and increase fluid and electrolyte intake with whole drug until resolution to grade less than or equal to one for intolerable or recurrent grade two to three and first occurrence of grade four diarrhea discontinued for recurrent grade four diarrhea. And just as a reminder, proactive mitigation and management of diarrhea associated with mobristertinib in patients with the EGFR exon 20 insertion positive advanced non-small cell lung cancer may reduce its severity. So there's very important to have that ongoing dialogue, that open communication with the patient. Okay. So here's our case study. Marie, a 60-year-old with non-small cell lung cancer with KRAS-G12 C mutation after first-line therapy. She has a 40-pack-year smoking history and was diagnosed with metastatic lung adenocarcinoma after she presented with back pain and shortness of breath. She had biomarker testing and showed PD-L1 by IHC was less than 1%. Her NGS, her KRAS mutation was seen, and she received first-line pembrolizumab and carboplatin permetrexed and now has disease progression. So now let's move over to the characterization of KRAS mutations in non-small cell lung cancer. Just some background as it relates to it. Commutations differ among KRAS mutations. The clinical relevance of, of differences in KRAS mutations 
Russian subtype is unknown and should be further investigated. You'll see here is the pie graph that shows the different KRAS mutation subtypes. What we will focus on for this talk is in particularly the KRAS G12C mutation. So this is a phase, this is a phase three trial, cold break 200, where it looked at satorcid versus doxotaxel and pre-treated advanced KRAS, KRAS G12C mutation positive in, in non-small cell lung cancer. So when we look at this study, I know there's a lot of going on this graph, but we're looking at the PFS and the median PFS. You see in the median P, when we look at the satorcid, the satorcid arm as it relates to the median PFS in months, you see 5.6 versus the doxotaxel arm. And when we look at the 12-month PFS in percentage, we see a 24.8 percentage over 10.1 with the doxotaxel. When we look at the most common grade three or greater AEs with satorcid, that's that diarrhea, that's that ele um, elevated ALT and ASC, which we're checking anyway, right? And then with doxotaxel, you see that neutropenia fatigue and fever neutropenia that we don't really don't see in the satorcid arm. And so you'll see the breakdown in that in the chart there where it tells you the different satorcids, the, the fatal ones that have been seen are, and what has happened the majority of the time, which is diarrhea, fatigue, and the percentage is the diarrhea is 33.7, fatigue is 6.5, nausea is 14.2. And compare that to the doxotaxel arm, and you'll see there as well. So the overall response rate in the satorcid arm was 28.1 versus 13.2. The DCR was 82.5 in the satorcid arm versus 60.3. And again, the medium overall survival was 10.6 versus 11.3. The phase three crystal one, which looked at uh, at aggressive pre and pre-treated again, advanced KRAS G12C mutation. So again, we're looking at that second line therapy as what we did with the EGFR exon 20 insertion. So when we look at the KRAS G12C and when we're looking at the overall survival rate, 98.3% with prior platinum chemotherapy and IO. So these are heavily pre-treated patients. And so when we look at the, the numbers and the overall, the medium overall survival was 12.6 in the, the crystal and the adagrastive arm. And when we look at um, the DCR for these patients, it was 89. The confirmed overall response rate was 48. The medium DOR was 8.5. The medium PFS was 6.5. And the common side effects, we're seeing this trend, right? It's a TKI type of therapy. So you have the diarrhea, nausea, any grave, vomiting, fatigue, out increase. We're checking those labs still and decreased ab appetite. So two grade five TREs were noted, which was pulmonary hemorrhage and cardiac failure. 52% of patients had a dose reduction. 61% had a dose interruption and 7% had a discontinuation due to TRAEs. In December 22, FDA granted accelerated approval for treatment of adults with this LA or metastatic KRAS G12C mutated in non-small cell lung cancer, having had received at least one prior therapy. So let's go to outcome rearrangements, right? So outcome rearrangements, they're found in approximately 5% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer, occurs more frequently in younger patients, light or never smokers, predominantly a fusion of alcohol with partner oncogenes, 
particularly the EML4, occurs in similar subgroups as patients with EGFR mutations, but EGFR mutations and ALK rearrangements are typically mutually exclusive. So when we look at the biomarker-directed therapy for ALK rearrangements, you see the list here. I will focus on the last three, which is the electinib, the brigatinib, and lorlatinib. When we look at the medium PFS as their first line, in electinib, you have 34.8 versus the 10.9 when compared to prazotinib. The medium overall survival is noted there as well. The median PFS, you have 24 months versus 11.1. When you look at lorlatinib, it's not es es estimated at this time versus 9.3 in the prazotinib lab. All of these are out, out rearrangement approved or off positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer therapy. It's also important to note that for lorlatinib, even though it is in the first line setting, it is also second line after frontline electinib or sertitinib and later line after prazotinib plus or minus other ALK inhibitors. So let's look at the dosing and the side effects. When we look at electinib, it's a twice a day with food. Brigatinib is a 90 milligram daily for seven days, and then you're going to taper it up with or without food. And lorlatinib is once a day. When we look at the side effects, the electinib, the greater than 20% fatigue, constipation, edema, myalgias, and anemia. When we look at the brigatinib, we see those there, di diarrhea, the fatigue, the nausea, as well as with the lorlatinib, the edema, the hyperlipidemia. Very important to take a note of that. Usually it is recommended in the PI to even start a patient on an anti-hyperlipidemia medication, you know, getting those labs very frequently and looking at those, peripheral neuropathy, cognitive effects, you're asking them if they're having like really visual dreams. That's one of something that I usually ask my patients. I remember this patient that I, that when I asked is when she told me, so make sure that we're asking the special, the specific questions, not general questions as it relates to these PKIs. And then you'll see on the last column there is those grade three side effects that tend to happen greater than or equal to 2% of the time. So when we let's move to the ROS1 fusions, when we look at that, it's most common in younger patients, never smokers, adenocarcinoma, high-grade histology. The frequency is 1.2 to 1.7% overall. And here you go. You see that presidentive that was used for ALK is also approved for the ROS1 fusions. You'll see the overall response rate there of 72%. The medium DOR, 24.7 months. The medium overall survival, 51.4 and then intractinib, which is the other medication approved in this space, overall response rate is 68%. Medium DRR is 20.5 as well. Again, intractinib is both approved for ROS1 and intract positive patients. So this dosing and side effects, when we talk about the dosing administration, you see that there one is a twice a day. The other one is a daily dosing. Frequent side effects, you'll see they're listed there as the grade, the most common versus the those that are less common, but I think what is important to make mention, especially with the prazotinib, that QT prolongation, with the intractinib, the dyspnea, lung infections. Because remember, this is for patients with lung cancer, right? So just keeping those in mind as well. Now we're going to focus on the BRAV V600 mutation. It occurs predominantly in adenocarcinoma, both patients with the history of smoker and never smoker. You're probably Familiar with this in the melanoma population, frequency is 1% to 2% overall. 
drug indication um, is the, the brafenib and tramatinib, which is approved for BRAF B600 positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer for previously untreated patients. You'll see the data there in terms of the overall survive, the overall response rate is 63.9, median PFS is 10.8. And previously treated patients, the overall response rate is 68.4, and the median PFS is 10.2 months. Most common AEs are pyrexia, nausea, vomiting, dry skin, peripheral edema, diarrhea, decreased appetite, and cough. Most, most frequent grade three AEs, which happen greater than 5% of the time, hypertension, hypernatremia, neutropenia, pyroxia, pyroxia and dyspnea, anemia, and increased ALT function. Medexon 14 skipping mutation. It is observed in 3 to 4% of patients. Incidence rate is differs based on histology. Occurs typically in the absence of other drivers. Medexon 14 skipping mutations may be associated with a MET amplification which has been identified as a resistant mutation in that EGFR TKI therapy space and EGFR mutation positive non-small cell lung cancer. RNA-based NGS speculated as the most accurate method for detection. The ones that we've talked previously are usually DNA-based, but when you have an RNA-based NGS test, and it's very specific to this um, type of mutation. So the trials that looked at this was compatinib and Patinib are two drugs that are approved for the MET inhibitors in those MET exon 14 positive advanced non-small cell lung cancer. When we look at this, Kapatinib was approved in May 2020, Kapatinib in February 2021. When we look at the overall response rate, prior treatment was 44. If they were treatment na naive, it was slightly higher. As well as in the Kapatinib, you had like about the same 44.6 and 44.9 in that treatment naive. And this is, if you're familiar with a plot graph, each each space represents the patient. And so you can see that PR, the partial, the standard, the SD, and the CR. When we looked at selected MET inhibitors and the dosing and side effects, we're looking at two drugs again, the Kapatinib and Tapatinib. One is a twice daily with or without food, and the other one is daily with food. So it's very important to know that, know your patient and so forth as well. You'll see the frequent side effects that are listed there. Just take in mind, MET drugs, MET inhibitors, they are always going to cause some peripheral edema. And so you'll see that listed here as a frequent side effect. And then those grade three or side effects, which happens greater than equal to 2%. But that peripheral edema is really huge in this population. So managing edema associated with selected MET inhibitor therapy is what we already know, especially as APPs, if you came from the bedside or nurses that may be on the on virtually as well, elevation, compression, stockings or sleeves, exercise and diet changes, physical therapy, referral, if warranted, diuretics, if not contraindicated, dose reduction, reduce or interrupt, interruption for grade three, grade two or greater, or if patient's quality of life is required. Just again, just to reiterate, proactive mitigation and management of edema associated with selective MET inhibitor therapy in patients with MET X14 plus advanced non-small cell lung cancer may reduce its severity. All right, so the next mutation or fusion that we're going to talk about is red fusions in lung cancer. They are bonafide lung cancer drivers with an incidence of 1% to 2% in the non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer population. Mutually exclusive with, the, uh, with other driving 
mutations. Up to half of patients with advanced disease have brain metastasis. Most frequent kyanine family member, or which one on the exon is that five KIF five B RET chimeric protein juxtaposis KIF KIF five B exon fifteen and red exon twenty. Other common fusions are listed there. Many other fusion partners have also been identified. So the two drugs of FDA approval is felpercatinib and prolisatinib. And then when we looked at these, both of them were approved in 2020. When we looked at some of the data from these trials, we have a phase one and two trial for both of them, felpercatinib and prolatinib. When we look at the overall response rate in that prior platinum-based Chemotherapy patient is 61%. That treatment naive is 84. Obviously, you've got a, a, a more of a robust response there. When we look at the prolatinib in that prior treatment, overall response rate was 59% and 72% in that treatment naive and listed as well as the medium DOR and the medium PFS. So when we look at the dosing and side effects, when we look at selpercatinib, it is weight dose. It's general, but it's still weight dose, and it is a twice-a-day medication, and the prolisatinib is a daily dosing. Common side effects you're looking at in terms of sulpercatinib, dry mouth, diarrhea, hypertension, fatigue, constipation, nausea, abdominal pain, anemia, rash, and headache. Prolisatinib has the less profile in terms of common side effects, which is fatigue, constipation, musculoskeletal pain, but still that hypertension. And then grade three side effects happen greater or equal to 2% are listed there. I will bring to your attention that hypertension. That is really something that you just want to make sure you educate the patient on well about. Monitoring for and managing toxicity associated with red specific inhibitors. As I said, that hypertension, you just want to make sure that you're optimizing the blood pressure before starting drug, monitor blood pressure during, after one week and then monthly. And however you all are going to correspond that, is that going to be your EMR system or a phone call? Grade three, if you're withholding, it persists despite optimal antihypertensive therapy. And I would say even make sure that their their blood pressure is, or I see it, they're optimized the blood pressure before it started. Just, I can't stress that enough. Don't start patients on this drug without knowing what their baseline, what their trend is. Hepatoxicity, we're doing those labs. You Still doing the CBC and CMP, you're going to monitor those AST and ALT prior to every two weeks and first three months. And if you have the luxury of having a oral chemo pharmacist, or if there's pharmacists on the on the on this virtual program, they're so key, especially with all these oral therapies. So don't feel, you know, I utilize ours on a regular basis. So just make, you know, because there's a lot of TKIs, especially in this lung space, especially if you don't do it day in and day out, you need to utilize your pharmacist if you have one available. Hemorrhagic events, advise patients about risk of bleeding with drug and to contact their healthcare provider at any sign or symptom of bleeding. And you list those, those modifications that are in that last column there. So when we look at in-track rearrangements and tract fusions and cancer, normal wall and neural development and utero and post-nasal neural differentiation, they can go not just, they're not exclusively to lung cancer. And that's what this slide here is telling us. When we look at the tract inhibitors, we're looking at the drugs tractinib and laratractinib. For the sake of time, I'm just going to try to kind of hit on some key percentage data that have come out of this study. When we look at the overall response rate, 
the C3.6, then the intractinib arm, medium overall survival had not been estimate. The medium follow-up was 19.2. When we looked at the larotractinib arm study, the overall response rate was 73%, and the medium overall survival was 40.7. So let's move to the HER2 mutations in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. This is our new one to the, to the mix. This was approved back in 2022. The incidence is 2 to 3% of non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. HER2, or you may see it on your report as ERBB2 mutations, is different from HER2 overexpression or HER2 amplification. There is potentially a higher propensity for brain metastasis while on treatment for patients with HER2 mutations versus those with KRAS or EGFR mutations. Um, and the TDXD HER2 targeted ADC coupling and an anti-HER2 MAB or monoclonal antibody with trastuzumab sequenced to a a particular inhibitor payload using a tumor selected cleavable, cleavable linker. So in simply stated, think of it like a ball. On the outside is the transfusumab and the inside is this targeted therapy. It goes to the cell, it opens up, and that's how it kills the, the cancer cells. This was based off of the phase two destiny lung 02 trial where it looked at trastuzumab, daratexacon, and pretreated HER2 mutated metastatic patients. So this again, Second line therapy, again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to try to hit some of the, the key points on this slide. One thing you need to know that both prior or platinum showed a, a, a response rate and that the efficacy outcomes, the medium DOR in months was 8.7. The confirmed overall response rate was 57.C. Some of that, just, just to touch on it, any grade, there was 92.1 percent of AEs um, when you looked at grade three or grade three or higher was 31.7. And so just just kind of keep an eye on this drug in terms of associated with drug dis discontinuation, reduction, interruption, and what their the ILD percentage was as well. So patient-specific molecular profile determines treatment course. Choose therapy directed toward each patient-specific non-small cell lung cancer genotype as determined by broad molecular profiling, preferably NGS. Most TKRs are now recommended as first-line therapy for patients with a specific targeted mutation. For many patients diagnosed with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, the best therapy, uh, therapeutic options may be a clinical trial. Patient-specific molecular profile determines discrimination is that choose therapy. As I said, the action item is to select therapy based on the results of molecular profiling and the evidence from clinical trials. So let's kind of switch the gears. I know we're kind of rushing on time, but I'm going to try to get this in and still have some time for questions. We're going to now move to potential lack of efficacy with immune checkpoint inhib inhibition and EGFR mutation positive non-small cell lung cancer. In a nutshell, what this trial showed us is that when you are starting a patient on immunotherapy who harbors an EGFR mutation, you really have a lesser response a less response rate than if you would have started that patient on their targeted therapy up front. Potential toxicity with sequential use of immunotherapy followed by TKI. Another reason why you need to know that, that mutation retrospective review of patients' records to identify severe toxicity with ICI and EGF-TKR regardless of sequence in patients with EGFR mutations. In patients treated with osimertinib within three months of an ICI, there was 24% develop a severe IRAEs 
Conversely, there was none if you went the other way. If they started on a target therapy, EGFR mutation, and then went to an immunotherapy or ICI. High PDL1 expression does not exclude the presence of a targeted mutation. So you may ask again, they need NGS testing, complete testing, not just PDL1. Efficacy to immunotherapy potentially reduces reduced in patients with a driving mutation. Giving immunotherapy upfront in a patient who has a driver mutation may increase the risk of a risk of AEs with target therapy later. So again, review molecular testing results before initiating treatment in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, even if that PDL1 comes back high, because remember, PDL1 comes back very quickly. So immunotherapy. This is the landscape of 2023 as it relates to immunotherapy in advanced non-small cell non-small cell lung cancer without an actionable mutation. As you can see that the list is long. And then we look at some specific updates as it relates to immunotherapy. This is the phase three adjuvant immunotherapy trial where it looked at um, uh, adjuvant of immunotherapy post-resection, post if they got the chemotherapy. So the primary endpoint was DFS by investigator. And this trial looked at pembrolizumab versus a placebo. Again, patients with stage 1B, post-surgical resection, no mutation identified. So when we looked at this, the DFS and overall populations, the ITT, here is the, 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 both of the graphs. We looked at the medium DFS and the Empower 010. You see the teasalizo arm had not been estimated. And when we looked at the pearls and keno, when we looked at the Pembro versus placebo, the medium DFS was 53.6 versus 42.0. Phase three checkmate, 8116 neoadjuvant. So this is getting immunotherapy even prior to resection, plus the chemotherapy for resectable stage 1B, 3A, and non-small cell lung cancer, the EFS over three-year update, when you looked at nivolumab plus chemotherapy in those patients, the medium EFS had not was not reached. When you looked at chemotherapy alone, that was only 21.1 months. So in immunotherapy for early-stage non-small cell lung cancer summary, adjuvant therapy approvals, atezolizumab, that is improved based on the Empower Z1010, adjuvant treatment following resection plus platinum-based chemo in stage 2 to 3A, non-small cell lung cancer with tumor PDL one expressions of greater than or equal to 1%. Pembrolizumab was based on the PEARL study, adjuvant treatment following resection plus platinum-based chemo in stage 1B or stage 3A non-small cell lung cancer regardless of PDL one expression. The overall survival data is immature for both. And the neoadjuvant therapy approval, the only approval as of now is nivolumab which is based on the Checkmate 816 neoadjuvant treatment in combination with platinum-based chemo and resectable non-small cell lung cancer. Summary, went to test. At initial diagnosis, locally advanced disease, at disease progression, and at disease recurrence. I can't take the, you cannot leave without understanding that these are the times when patients need to be tested. And now that there are targeted therapies and immunotherapies that are Available again in that early stage, that initial diagnosis, disease progression, and that disease recurrence and then locally advances. So our action plan, order biomarker testing, preferably NGS, to identify actionable mutations in all patients with advanced non-squamous, non-small cell 
lung cancer, and considering those patients with squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Proactive mitigation and management of diarrhea associated with mobrostertinment in patients with EGFR exon 20 insertion positive in advanced non-small cell lung cancer may reduce the severity. Proactive mitigation and management of edema associated with selected MET inhibitor therapy in patients who harbor the MET exon 14 may reduce the severity. Select therapy based on the results of molecular profiling and the evidence from the clinical trials. Remember to wait for that complete, complete molecular testing results before initiating treatment in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, even when their PDL1 IHC results show high expression. So we have a question. Are you suggesting that platinum-based chemotherapy is better than other chemotherapies to penetrate the CNS? No, not at all. What we do know is that chemotherapy does not penetrate the CNS well at all. Our best options are some of these TKIs, especially with osimertinib. We know that it has a great CNS penetration. And so sometimes you will see, well, in our clinic, we will get a patient that may progress while on osimertinib, but if they still do not have any brain metastasis, we will continue them on osimertinib and start that chemotherapy. So no, no, I am not suggesting that that there are certain chemotherapies that penetrate better into the DNS space. We don't have that as of now. Great. I want to thank you, Rashida. This has been a great talk. I've learned a lot today, actually, and certainly a good understanding of the need for, for biomarker testing and NGS testing. So thank you so much for educating all of us today. It's a great presentation. And I thank want to you thank for you having for me. It. And the audience will see you at the next presentation. Thanks again. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by an educational grant from CGEN. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.